Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Walking along the street in summertime, my saving grace is always headphones. I think I just can't hear the, the harassment most of the time. I'm like, hmm, haven't been harassed for a while. And then I'll take out my headphones and I'm like, oh, damn it. <laughs> the, the, sound, the soundtrack's still there. The exactly, just underneath. ignore it. <laughs> Hello and welcome to The World As It Should Be, a podcast in which we ask our guests to tell us what they would change to help create their perfect world. By listening to what they'd like to change, we'll hear more about who they are, what they do and what inspires them. This podcast is brought to you by the team behind Prima Donna, a uniquely anarchic and joyous festival of everything creative. My name is Shona Abianka and I'm a book publicist working with some of the most thought-provoking authors writing today. I'm Catherine Riley, a writer and the director of the Prima Donna Festival. We're delighted to be your guides on this podcast adventure. The world as it should be from Prima Donna. Katrina Morton is a 24-year-old writer, activist and podcaster based in London. Katrina's podcast, After Surviving Sexual Assault, was broadcast on BBC Sounds in 2019. A 10-part series, it gave a platform to survivors of sexual abuse and assault to discuss their experiences. Katrina is also the founder of the survivor-centred website lifecontinuesafter.com. She founded both of these platforms as a space for survivors of sexual trauma to come together to share their stories. Katrina's book, The Way We Survive, Notes on Rape Culture, is out on the 8th of July. Katrina, welcome to our podcast and thank you so much for being with us today. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here. Um, I know it must be really busy for you. Your book is out imminently. Can you tell us a bit about it? Yeah, of course. Um, Yeah, so The Way We Survive is a um, sort of polemical piece uh, written from my own perspective of a survivor of multiple assaults and abuses um, on my own lived experience, um, what I have endured, uh, the sort of knowledge and wisdom that I've unfortunately gained but um i'm privileged enough to like be able to express to people and uh it's yeah a commentary on uh our current rape culture a lot of it focusing on the current way that the uk treats um sexual violence and was it something you thought about for a long time yeah well it's all quite a it was quite a process quite a nice process to writing the book i have always been a writer my literally my whole dream of my whole life has to be a writer so it's quite wild that it has actually come to fruition especially at such a young age um so that's wonderful um i, I started off uh, the website first uh, life continues after um i started that in the midst of um surviving my most recent sexual assault and I'd been through therapy I'd been through group therapy and stuff um and after the end of that because you know with the way these things are funding and everything it was I think it was an eight-week course and obviously after those eight weeks I just felt completely lost um so I started Life Continues After as a real place for survivors to come and and share my main thing is about creativity and especially for other writers and other, you know, um, creators to share either their work or the works that have really helped them. Because for me, 
what has most helped me in my survival has been um, pieces of art, to be honest, like any piece of art, um, like music, especially um, different books um, and, and writers have really helped me. Films and TV shows have really helped me come to terms with what's happened to me and really helped me um, know how to talk to, about it to other people as well. Um, and then I had a very romantic story um, of coming to the podcasting um, world and, and coming to making the podcast. I actually, my friends, one of my best friends is a producer and I went with her to a podcasting festival, which was the, um, it's called Content is Queen, the wannabe podcast festival in 2018. Um, and long story short, I was at a panel um, and I'd sort of had this idea for the podcast in my head, but not really given too much thought to it. And then Carrie Ad Lloyd, who, who hosts Griefcast, was on the panel. And I just sort of took it upon myself and I was like, hi, Carriad. I'm just one question is, you know, talking about really difficult things. I've had this idea for a podcast. I asked Carriad that question. She answered it very kindly. Um, and then afterwards, she and the other panelists were like, we really want to talk to you afterwards about your podcast idea. And when I went uh, to talk to her about it, there was a, a BBC uh, commissioner there. <laughs> and essentially wow. they came up to me and were like, let's do it <laughs> it was a few months after that until the with the planning and, and everything to actually for the podcast to come together but that's essentially how it happened it was meant to be I know I know it's all very very serendipitous because then I would say when people are like oh how did you get into like publishing I'm like honestly don't ask me it's really annoying to ask me it's a really annoying story <laughs> because for me uh, it was after the podcast um a colleague of mine on the podcast went to work actually at my publishing house and had been chatting to one of the editors there. And then on my birthday in 2019, uh, my editor um, messaged me on Instagram wow. and uh, approached me about how I thought about uh, how I felt about writing a book. Um, and yeah, and then it just it just sort of um, expanded from there. It was actually quite a different book to begin with. Um, like uh, I was looking at like my proposal for it the other day and the process we went through there. It's quite a different book to how it was originally um, planned to be myself. Um, and I think, yeah, that just shows how I developed it over the whole year of writing it. And yeah, like developing my thoughts. and developing. So you didn't have to go through the process of pitching to lots of agents? And... No, well, well, no, again, it's an annoying thing. Like, I feel really like... People are going to be listening. Oh, they're going to hate me. I know. I I hate myself. No, I don't hate myself. Um, But yeah, so basically, uh, my my lovely editor um, at Trapeze uh, contacted me about it, went in for a couple of meetings and stuff, discussed it, and it was all looking really good. And she was like, just to let you know, you should probably get a literary agent. Mm -hmm. And I was like, oh yeah all right <laughs> so she gave me some names and then I emailed one and my amazing agent is called Rachel um at Joe Unwin um yeah and then it took off from there um so I've been very lucky it's sort of like an, an upside down version of how most people do it, I know um yeah. but for all current books I'm still gonna have to do the like proposal I'm literally writing a proposal right now and it's bloody difficult um so yeah I, I haven't totally evaded that for my future career but so yeah. you, you talked about how the book kind of evolved in the in the process of writing and it's obviously a book that has like a lot of research in it it's, it's quite dense with you know theory as well as your um, own experiences is uh, it kind of uh, the thread that runs through it how, mm-hmm. how hard and time consuming and exhausting was that process of kind of delving into all that material 
Yeah, it's a good question. Um, I'm especially thinking about that at the moment as I'm writing my next book proposal because I sort of look back at the work that I did and I'm like, how how did I do this? That was a lot of work. Um, But I think the answer to that is I also have like academic training. So I was I was doing my master's at the same time as writing this book um, in gender and cultural studies. So I really had that um, was fantastically helpful because obviously a lot of what I was reading and, and researching there was sort of uh, co-constituted to the book so mm. that was really helpful um and as I have academic research like experience I sort of yeah you knew had had the skills of, of how to research really efficiently and you know all mm. that jazz but also throughout the book it is also sort of um I'd say about a quarter of the book is like collections from my past notes and past um things that I'd written like for myself or for the website um, so it was also pulling from those spaces and knowing how to yeah make it um, uh, flow all together and, and be ultimately what I wanted it to be, which is the book is ultimately turned into. Uh, but it was quite, quite time consuming. But also I signed my contract for the book deal on March 20th uh, last year. <laughs> so literally like, was it what, like a day before the lockdown actually happened? So, oh, then, so then we were just in lockdown and, and, and you know, it was a very horrible sort of writer's retreat I guess because I just had to stay inside and just have this thing um sorry about uh, the Yankee dude all right it's um, nice scenic it's summertime guys (laughs) yeah you can really see that you have that kind of trait that training and discipline in academic research um because because the way the book is is so is so kind of robust um so it yeah what is your next book going to be as kind of in the same sort of vein or are you going to just write a novel and just make stuff up (laughs) um right so my current tactic is I am I am going to write another non-fiction um I uh, am afraid it might even be a little bit deeper in the academic (laughs) academic vibe which I don't know how people feel about that but um and then I I have I always have lots of ideas but then I want to write a novel my idea is brilliant get two non-fictions down and then have a have a great time um with my novel that I want to write which also takes some the the novel idea I have will take some like ground research I have to go to Ireland for a while so and that's not bad isn't it yeah (laughs) I know not not a bad place um Um, with the one with the book you're writing now the next non-fiction mm -hmm. I was really interested that at the start of the book the current book you say you're very caring about the reader and mm-hmm. how they need to take care of themselves and do what they need to do in order mm-hmm. to enjoy the book and not you know let it disturb them too much and there are lots of trigger warnings etc is that something that you feel strongly about for the next book as well yeah completely I mean the next book uh, another thing to say about it is that it will be pivoting away from talking exclusively about trauma um because it's been hard <laughs> um it's obviously quite a lot to work on and to write about constantly I've loved it but I also don't really want to be completely pigeonholed um in what I talk about and what I have the capability to talk about um but to answer your question, yeah, I think it's completely important. I think, you know, in the trigger warnings, I say, I think personally that trigger warnings for a book like this, you know, I, there's actually quite a lot of discussion going on at the moment about whether books should have trigger warnings and content warnings. Um, I think especially in a book like The Way We Survive, like it, you kind of have to as a matter of access and just making it really clear to people that it's gonna, there's going to be tough things in this book. Um, and you need to yeah look after yourself as best you can because 
especially obviously the content and the way we survive, it could be hugely triggering and hugely distressing for some people. Um, and what I would never want to do is, is you know, just chuck people in at the deep end um, and not have a way for them to feel safe and supported with, with reading it. That's, gr- um, that's great. Thank you. Before we move on to your three things that mm-hmm. you'd like mm-hmm. to change to create the world as it should be, I just wanted to ask you a, a quick follow-up question. You said that you, art and creativity and TV and film and all mm-hmm. that, those kind of things have, have been tools that have helped you along the way. I just wondered if you had anything that you'd want to recommend, um, anything you've watched or listened to or, or people, you know, artists, creators that you, you want to give a shout out to. Yeah. Oh, oh, that's a good question. Um, <laughs> things to watch. Uh, the thing is, there was actually a whole chapter on this, <laughs> um, and it ultimately didn't make it into the book. Um, oh, so really? We should have <laughs> yeah. Um, but I mean, there's tons of stuff. Actually, I know what I'm going to say. Tuka and Bertie, um, the cartoon by Lisa Hannawalt, who is the artist on um, on BoJack Horseman. She has her own show called Tuka and Bertie, which is about two best friends who are birds um and it's great but um it actually got it got cancelled but it's actually been picked up somewhere else now and it's coming out oh my god it's already out sorry to realize oh my god. <laughs> it came out like three days ago oh i'm gonna watch it um but in the first series there is a really really beautiful depiction of um childhood sexual abuse and coming to terms with that and it's just done in such a sensitive and such a gentle way and i absolutely love that um in terms of other films that are handle the topic of violent um, sexual assault really well, there's a film called The Light of the Moon uh, by Jessica Thompson, Jessica M. Thompson, um, that came out a few years ago. It has um, Stephanie Beatriz, who is the who plays Rosa mm-hmm. in um, Brooklyn Nine Nine. Um, but Love that's the her. picture. Yeah, she she's favorite character. Yeah, yeah mine too. She is incredible in this film. It's a tough watch. It's about a woman who's raped by a stranger. Um, and then it's about her afterwards that's the main thing that the the assault happens at the start of the film and then it's her and how she copes with it afterwards and all of her how all of her life is affected by it um but it's a fantastic depiction and also it's really good to know about the filming of it because I, I, I went to a screening of it at BFI Film Festival a few years ago and the director I remember said like they took such care in how they shot it as well like all the um all the actors were it was all very consent led like lots of mm. sets lots of um yeah really really gently and, and carefully done with how how they depict that so, yeah. yeah very timely with Michaela Cole isn't it thanking yeah exactly the um, intimacy coordinator yeah completely completely and of course yeah I May Destroy You is like mm. one of the best shows ever in um so of course that as well yeah great thank you um, okay, let's move on to picture your or more ideal world. <laughs> um, do you want to talk us through the first thing that you would change um, about uh, prisons? Prisons, yes. Um, I would abolish prisons, <laughs> um, which actually, I guess, I think it's quite interesting. Unless you've read the book, you might be quite surprised if you think that that's like one of my first things I'd change. Um, but I just think prisons are incredibly cruel incredibly awful in how they treat human beings um they're also really defunct in 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 the um the the solutions that they try and find for people like um yeah it's not working in the first place uh for example with like uh rape um charges being so low Mm. um 
you know, the, the, the burden of evidence that comes to survivors of, of any crime, but especially um, sexual violence. But even if it was working, it doesn't actually change anything about how our world operates. Um, at the end of the day, it's disappearing the few undesirables who, who do get found out. And of course, it, it's people from marginalised communities who usually suffer the brunt of that um, those convictions. Um, and yeah, it, it doesn't it doesn't stop the awfulness of the world. <laughs> um, yeah. It just plainly doesn't. I think there's there's there is research um, that I've read. I can't remember off the top of my head, but there's research that shows it it doesn't affect crime rates. Crime still happens. It isn't a deterrent, um, and it's just really brutal. I think especially in the past year, it's shown with how prisoners have been treated during COVID, um, mm. and just the plain lack of humanity that there is in that in those cases Mm. do you feel let down by our criminal justice system yes (laughs) yes very plainly yes um in my book the the longest chapter actually is on the criminal justice system and the experience i had as a survivor with them um i yeah it was awful and it was extremely Mm. traumatic um lots of people say it's like can often incredibly be more traumatic than what happened yeah uh, which is awful um you say in your conclusion in the book Mm. uh, i'm just going to read i read out your words to you um after all i've just said uh, including what you've just described about your the failures of the criminal justice system after all i've just said i do believe there is a way forward and that way is to care to care for our communities our loved ones and for those who are in even shittier situations than our own no matter your identity, you can help others. So do you believe there are kind of individual acts, shifts that will kind of create a bigger change that we, you know, if we go along with your idea of abolishing prison, which you're right, there's lots of evidence to bear out the fact that they just don't work. Is it, is it the kind of, does that not place some burden on the individual to kind of should we all be better? <laughs> it's a very good it. question. Um, yes, at the same time, obviously the burden shouldn't just solely lie on mm. literally individuals, but it should be more of like a community move. But obviously, yeah, it's individuals within that. Yeah, so so I um, used to be a facilitator um, for university, um, working in active bystandership um, and consent right. training. And yeah, the like main thing that we'd say within those, those three-hour sessions was to do with you do have you know, it's also a positive thing. You you do have power as an yeah. individual to change those circumstances. And the main thing we teach about uh, is no matter how great or small, you can have interventions. Uh, and, and the way we did it, we obviously like, trained in how to do it tactfully and how to do it um, mm. in, a, in a way that's actually effective. Um, but in, in situations you see, so whether it's someone catcalling someone else or whether it's someone, the, a large thing we always talked about was rape jokes and people making jokes about sexual violence and the way that that's often deemed as not that bad and it's not actually seen as that violent. But in reality, it is because I think I say in the book somewhere else, like making those rape jokes and having those lesser end um, uh, acts of, of sexual violence, it leads it's sort of a snowball effect into leading to other things being excused. Um, of course, and yeah. normalising that language around around acts of violence as well. Mm-hmm. So, uh, it you talk about you, you've you've uh, completed training on rape mm-hmm. consent and active bystandership. How much of that should be compulsory? Do you think for young people, for people, you know, offenders? How how, why, how much of it should be made to be learned? 
hundred <laughs> percent. All yeah. of it. I think that's the main thing. Um, it is, yeah, teaching people, giving people the education, um, in how to change things, how to how to change the way we talk about it, how to change the way we respond to people when that you know when they disclose um, that they've been through something. I think it should be mandatory, definitely in high school. Um, mm. Obviously, age specific, you know, things like that. Um, mm. in, in the way that you talk to, to to children about it and young people about it, and then yeah, in, with people who are perpetrators of such crimes it should be the the main thing in 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 getting them to um yeah relearn their understanding of the world understand the harm that they've caused and understand if they can do anything to rectify that harm and also how to just not ever do that again <laughs> yeah yeah is there anything else you think we can do in our collective so our collective as women or as queer people or as black and Asian people to create situations where we're more likely to achieve justice or to feel like there's a more level playing field? Oh, that's a big question. <laughs> it's a bit of a big question. I'm sorry. I oh, that's okay. That's okay. Do I think, um, level the playing field. I think, um, community and, and, um, believing one another mm. and, um, yeah. And not, um, yeah the main thing is just believing people and giving them the space to feel comfortable to talk about what they've been through and to talk to you say like one of your friends was violent to someone else Mm. um making the room within yourself so that if someone did come to you you know and said like you know your best friend has harmed someone to also not ostracize that person who has done the harm but to work together to try and change that and to try and yeah but always, but always, always centering the survivor and what they want in the situation. If they never ever want to see that person again, that's fine. Like, they don't have to. Yeah. Um, yeah. And yeah, really feeding it. There was a good question in the book, actually, it made me think, which was when you ask, is it better to be honest or protected? Mm-hmm. And I thought that was a really interesting question. Um, what do you think? Um... I think it really depends. Um, and I think I know exactly which bit you're talking about. Mm. I actually read that bit last night. <laughs> um, I think I think I say an interesting thing like in response to myself in that in that section, I say, is it not better to be honest with yourself about what needs protecting and the boundaries yeah. that you have? Because with my situations, also like within the book even, I, I think it's quite interesting that I don't really talk about the things that have happened to me. There are very brief glimpses, but like yeah. I don't really delve into them because it is because of legal issues. I can't talk about certain things and that's a whole other barrel of fish. But it's also because I need to protect parts of myself um, and need to protect yeah, my, my life um, outside of this work. Um, yeah. So I think honesty is great in, its, in as much of a capacity as it can be. But yeah, being honest with yourself about what you can and can't do. Mm. Okay, we're going to move on to your next um, yes. next big change. So I'm going to hand over to Shona. Um, okay, so you say that misogyny is obviously central to my book, all different types of misogyny. Can you talk a little bit about that? And you include shame in that as well, don't you? So yeah, I think misogyny, obviously it's a big thing to want to change about the world, uh, but I think it is the leading cause of uh, pain and, and suffering across all genders as well like it's obviously women who are more violently affected by it and who have their lives literally like ruined um by acts of misogyny 
but also it's shit for everyone. Am I allowed to swear on this podcast? <laughs> it's fucking shit for everyone. Like men have a shit time too. Obviously, other people on the gender spectrum have an awful time, and it's just shit. <laughs> That's my my two thousand one misogyny. Um, but misogyny in school, yeah. I mean, what did I say? Oh, I think I say in the book my first, my first first experience of misogyny in school was being um, we were playing kiss chase, um, and this man who's a lovely man. Lovely man now, I'm sure. Actually, he's not even sure. He is a lovely man. I still briefly know him. Um, he, we were playing Kiss Chase, and it was boys on girls, as it usually was. And he was chasing me, and he fell, and he pushed me head on into a wooden fence, and I got a really big nosebleed. And then I was crying and had to go home. <laughs> I think that's a really good example of how misogyny starts really young. Um, yeah, and just, you know, another thing that comes to mind is I'm sure a lot of people my age and older, it's probably still happening now. You know, remember in like dress codes in school, mm. you were always told, I remember when we went into sixth form, we were told that you couldn't, what you had to cover your shoulders because otherwise it'd be distracting to the male teachers. Oh my God. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> really? Yeah. Yeah. I'm pretty, I, I mean, and it was definitely men. And I think it was like insinuated that it was about the, like the male teachers. And yeah, and that's like, that's your shoulders. Yeah. I mean, that's like wow. Victorian stuff. Like, yeah, we weren't allowed to get our shoulders out. Um, and I that's think, a, that's you know, that that happens in Moxie. Have you seen that film Moxie? The, does it? Really yeah, yeah, yeah the Amy Poehler film. Mm. Yeah. Anyway, that that is literally the exact same thing that the the girls uh, rebel against the fact that the teacher the girl. Well, basically, there's a girl with uh, larger breasts, yeah. and she is wearing a vest, and the teacher asks her to cover up because it's distracting to him. And and so mm. all the girls start to wear them. Anyway, sorry. No, I, I that actually <laughs> reminds me of a great bit in the book about catcalling. And mm. it's so interesting because I know that you said in the book that you did, um, was it you that confronted um, some men about it and there was only one that was willing to talk to you? That's a study. That's no, that, that was, was a study that you report um, on. Right. Podcaster for, was it NPR or, or did, no, for This American right. Life, I think. That's Ellen, right. Eleanor Gordon-Smith yeah. is the journalist's name. Yeah, she was in Australia in Sydney. Yeah. She, was walking down a street and confronted is sort of a little study she was doing confronted everyone who was catcalling her and only one man talked about it and even when she talked to him about it and said how awful it was and how awful it made her feel he didn't care he was just like no oh but it's a compliment yeah um, yeah sorry I'm still thinking about that it makes me so cross um <laughs> it's awful it's disgusting and especially you know it's sunny right now I think I say and I still feel this now I think I'll always feel this walking along the street in summertime my saving grace is always headphones i think mm. i just can't hear the, the harassment most of the time i'm like hmm, haven't been harassed for a while and then i'll take out my headphones and i'm like oh damn it. <laughs> <That's> the, the, <laughs> sound, the soundtrack's still there the exactly. so just ignore it <laughs> before we move on to your third um thing that you would change there was a quote in the book that i loved and i think Catherine would love this too where, where you say there is a special place i reserve for rage for those of us who've been so historically fucked over by abuses of power mm -hmm. i mean that rage must just be ongoing yes and that's why i'm in therapy <laughs> <laughs> but also is don't we all have some of that yeah. inside us just yeah. We, yeah. by virtue of the fact of existing as women in you know the spaces that we take up i i i'm constantly being told that i'm being <laughs> angry and raging mm. um, and you, you can kind of dispel it as a you know you can laugh about it but that rage is at the a root of so much of our experience i think definitely and when you get to a certain age it's always hormonal you're just permanently hormonal apparently yeah Obviously, yeah, that and nothing else. Yeah, exactly. 
nobody else is being stupid shit. You're just really hormonal. Do you feel um, hopeful or hopeless about the direction of travel with, you know, Me Too and Time's Up and, and things, you know, being named now that uh, perhaps weren't named even 20 years ago? Do you think, do you think misogyny is on its way out? <laughs> I want to say yes. Um, yeah. And I do think in a lot of ways, one thing I don't want to happen, though, is to people to get complacent about it. And, you know, to think, oh, we've had me too. We've had times up. It's fine. Things have changed. There's a bloody long way to go. Um, mm. And there's a lot to still be unraveled. Um, so I would say cautiously optimistic. <laughs> um, okay. I want to be optimistic, but it's also kind of hard when the world is so awful around. Yeah, mm. yeah, totally agree. Okay, well, I'm going to move you on to the final of your changes. The most important. This, this one. is a seismic, yeah, shift in in the world order. So, do you want to do you want to talk us through it? Um, I want to abolish coriander. <laughs> How very dare you! I hate it. It's disgusting. I hated it my whole life. My mum's obsessed with it. She puts it on everything. Uh, we had to have very serious conversations a few years ago um and it's just everywhere you know like you get a pret sandwich coriander you get you get a barn me coriander i went to vietnam a few years ago and this is going to make me sound so ignorant and so awful and just such a white palette but like the i just hated the food because there's coriander and everything so yeah, i mean I that's ate. not the cuisine for you is it <laughs> it really wasn't it was a bad place to go for coriander coriander wise it could possibly one of the worst countries apart from india for you to go <laughs> Weirdly so, though, weirdly, cooked coriander, not so bad. <laughs> but I still generally abolish it because it's gross. Raw. So I was going to ask you if you'd ever tackled this head on, like with something like a Thai broth with lots of coriander, but you obviously have done that and um and it oh, hasn't yeah. worked. No. Yeah, fair. <laughs> so when I read when I read, when I read uh, your third thing, it it said in uh, it said everyone gets a coriander free garden. And I didn't know whether you meant everyone gets a garden with your coriander, or everyone who has a garden has all the coriander taken out of their garden. Right. <laughs> so there's no, a general recall on coriander. <laughs> And you have to pull it out of your ground. And then also everyone gets a garden, but it can't have coriander in it. And if you do yeah. coriander, then you get, your garden gets taken away. What's your it. take on uh, What's your take on dried coriander? Like the herb? So, uh, I, I haven't spent much time with it. I don't want to. Um, I just really hate it. There's also a thing, you might about be about to say this, that it tastes like soap. It actually doesn't like it does that doesn't make sense to me it's just disgusting <laughs> okay so well, it's not a genetic thing if it tastes I'm like soap, sure it is well, <laughs> well i've just never gotten the soap thing because i don't get that i'm just like it's rank no i so <laughs> I, I i confess i i used to be like you katrina i used to really really hate coriander and i don't know whether it, as you get older you lose your taste don't you, you lose literally <laughs> excuse <laughs> me coriander's lush can you stop and anyway anyway but what i wanted to do was recommend something for you to try okay. which is part of my uh rehabilitation into the coriander world <laughs> Which is, is something called a tequila vedita. So you have a shot of tequila, and don't try this at home, kids, if you're in the <laughs> uh, Do try it if you are overage. Um, shot of tequila, and a sh you make up a, 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 a mix of pineapple juice, chili, mint, and, and coriander, mm. and you blitz it. And so it's like a green sort of, it looks like a health juice. It tastes like a health juice. So you do the tequila first, and then you do the vedita, and you're left with a kind of warm, excited mouth. It's like it's a shot of tequila way. and then a spoonful of salsa verde. Kind of, kind of, but it's anyway. 
uh, it helped me. It might help others. Oh I just you know, I'm just trying to it's help. It's good advice. I don't think I'm going to take it. <laughs> but, um, I just, yeah, I've accepted it. I'm never going to be into it. It's fine. And no Does your boyfriend like Coriander? Enjoy it. Does he? Yeah. I actually can't remember. I, d- I, think, he, I think he's sort of like, eh. <laughs> so I think it's, yeah, he'd be fine with it. He'd, he'd pass the test. He'd be allowed to have a garden. So. <laughs> so are you a big garden fan i am i am indeed mm. especially over the past year um i mean i mm. currently live in a flat without a garden which is very sad i have a very small garden out front but it's essentially just my dog's toilet so we don't <laughs> spend tons of time there um, and yeah but whenever i have been so my parents have a really really nice garden my dad has reached the lovely wholesome age where he just gardens lots and that's really nice uh mm. he's very proud of it though very particular um so i do have does he let you loose on it oh no no <laughs> i mean i will be allowed to walk around it but um i'm not allowed to implement any changes yet that i'm working towards okay. <laughs> yeah. Um, I hope you get there. yeah just green spaces i think the past year has really i've gotten much more into naturalism i mean i grew up in like south manchester in the suburbs so mm. it was always quite green and I very much took that for granted. And then I sort of came to London when I was 18. I've been here since. And I'm really, really missing the countryside mm. and just, yeah, and peace and the garden. And I've started reading a lot more. Currently, I'm reading Losing Eden by Lucy Jones, oh, um, yeah. which is so good. And mm. it's about the need of like wildlife and, and nature around you for your mental health and your well-being. Um, yeah. And yeah, I've just gotten a lot more into that and see that as really important in my life now. Did you yeah. write some of the book outside? Did I? That's a really good question. Um, I don't think I did. <laughs> I think I mostly wrote it inside. I think mm. that's not true. I think I, I mostly wrote it inside. But when I would, I would often go for walks mm. just with a notebook um, and make notes. I also often implement voice notes if I'm like walking around, um, you know, around parks in London and stuff or elsewhere. I just make voice notes if as I, as things come to me sort of. Um, and I think that's a really helpful thing I've worked out how to do because I often find yeah. writing stuff down, you know, and it's just like your mind and your hand aren't going fast enough. So I feel like mm. speaking into the voice notes can be really helpful. Yeah. And then I'd use that material um, and write it up into the book. Mm. We spoke to a lot of writers that use mm. voice notes as yeah. their kind of first pass at ideas and then and then take it take it to the screen. Yeah, exactly. So um, after achieving your coriander-free future, mm-hmm. what um, what's next for you? Uh, what's next for me? It's a good question. Um, I am working on a few things. I do have a few. I mean, obviously, the book's out in three weeks from, from the re- mm. when we're recording this. Um, but I uh, have another few things coming out uh, with some magazines like um, Ablezine and Sick Magazine, which are like um, disability-centered um, magazines, which I'm really excited for those things to come out. And then, yeah, working on a few other ideas. I'm at that space as a writer where I like, I have so many ideas I just need to like work out which one to centre on because uh, I think I just get really excited by new ideas um, and then spend a lot of time on them when I should really be writing on other certain things. But I'm developing my, my proposals for my second book, which I'm hoping to yeah have done in a few months, uh, which, yeah, talks, it will centre a lot more on, on disability and, and uh, productivity in our world. Um, yeah, so it's very exciting. Uh, yeah. Yeah, trying to, trying to get that done. Yeah, that sounds like enough to keep you busy. Exactly, yeah, just, just about. 
<laughs> well, brilliant. Thank you so much for your time today. It's been so interesting talking with you. Thank, and, you, thank you, Katrina. We'd like, look forward to having you back on for the next book. Yeah. yeah. Thank you so much. Thank you. It's been lovely. world as it should be from prima donna the world as it should be from prima donna